This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. I'm here today with Dr. Pedro Noguera, an acclaimed sociologist whose research and scholarship focuses on how schools are influenced by social and economic conditions, as well as by demographic trends in local, regional, and global contexts. He is the Distinguished Professor of Education at the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies and Faculty Director for the Center for the Transformation of Schools at UCLA. Dr. Noguera serves on the boards of numerous national and local organizations and appears as a regular commentator on educational issues issues on CNN, MSNBC, National Public Radio, and other national news outlets. Uh, Pedro, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to join you. So much of your work has looked at systemic inequalities when it comes to education in the United States today, funding inequality, uh, disparities in achievement and opportunity, racial inequality. Thinking broadly across uh, our educational systems, could you give us an update as to where we're at today? What does educational opportunity look like for, uh, in particular, for children of color and kids from low-income families? Well, I would say, sadly, um, despite the fact that we have uh, made closing the achievement gap a priority for the last uh, 17, 18 years since No Shelf Behind, we really haven't made any progress. And it's because we really haven't addressed wide gaps in educational opportunities that exist and that correspond to the neighborhood you live in and often the racial and the socioeconomic background of the children and their families. So we, we continue to spend less on poor children, uh, generally poor children of color especially. We continue to have um, schools that are characterized by hypersegregation. And we know that money translates into teacher salaries, translates into the quality of the facilities kids are in, whether or not there are libraries, whether or not there are laboratories for kids to use. So it has an impact. And um, we haven't, as a nation, really addressed that, that problem, despite the fact that rhetorically, at least, we've said we want to see all kids, regardless of their backgrounds, excelling. Well, we haven't created the conditions that would allow that to occur. You've talked about the uh, some of these 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 larger structural issues, poverty and structural racism that that are that stand in the way of really leveling the playing field, improving academic and social outcomes. Can you talk a little bit about how the way in which they're interrelated, not not just how they work together, but to what extent can you craft real solutions if you are not addressing both at the same time? Well, that's the problem, um, and that's the reason why so many of the so-called solutions we pursued have done very little. You know, as a as a country, we and and you see this happen in, in states all across the country. We fixate on um, what we think is a several bullet solution. In L.A. right now, it's been choice expanding charter schools. Mm -hmm. A few years back, it was phonics. We were going to promote phonics in schools. Some districts are putting their emphasis on technology and getting computers and laptops in the classrooms. There is no silver bullet. And this is this way of thinking about education is based on a kind of fiction and a fantasy that if you just do one thing, everything will, you know, be transformed. Anybody who is spending time really thinking about it, working with schools knows there are several critical ingredients that have to come together. Uh, you need to get parents involved. Parents have to be involved, which means that, that the staff needs to work with parents to build trust that's rooted in respect and empathy, and so that, that, that there's reinforcement at home for the learning that happens in schools. You need to support teachers, because teachers need guidance on how to meet the needs of the kids. And if you don't provide that support, what you'll find is you'll have constant teacher turnover, and you'll find teachers who are just ineffective at responding to the educational and social needs of kids. You need strategies to address those social needs that go beyond the classroom. So we need to make sure there's a nurse on site, or that there's lunch, uh, that there's... Um, 
a clinic if need be, or um, a social worker, because we know that the health needs, the social needs of children impact learning. Um, you need to make sure there's strong leadership in place. Uh, and 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 we know that it's almost impossible to find a successful school that doesn't have an effective leader who has a vision and who has the ability to rally a staff around that vision. So we, we've known these things. I, I, I'd be surprised if any of the listeners say, wow, I've never, I've never thought of that. <laughs> I, I think this is almost obvious. It's almost common sense. What we have to ask ourselves is why doesn't common sense influence education policy? Why do we keep pursuing these uh, silver bullet solutions and overlooking the obvious. That's the real problem with policy uh, around education today across the country. Do you, do you think it's part of it is that uh, we tend to, you know, we, we grasp for the, the silver bullet solution because it's easier just to kind of grab onto a single idea and a single approach? It's, is, it, is it too hard to think so comprehensively about the needs of kids and, and think about ways to implement real solutions? I think it's a combination of things. I think Politicians like silver bullet solutions because it makes them appear to be doing something. You know, I can think of several Democratic leaders, for example, the new governor of California, uh, the mayor of New York, who said, I'm going to bring universal preschool to, to our schools. And I'm going to, and that's, that was like one of their big campaign promises. Right. Now, I'm a big supporter of, of preschool and universal preschool. Uh, you know, every country that outperforms this has this. However, the research is very clear. Universal preschool must be high quality. That means teachers have to be trained, that be paid a living wage. It means you have to have a curriculum. <laughs> it means you have to have adequate facilities. Mm -hmm. So it's not a cheap intervention. It's right. a it's a cost effective intervention. But when a politician gets a hold of it, often what they're trying to do is get political mileage out of it rather than thinking strategically, okay, how would we do this in a way that would really address some of the systemic issues? I think um, so. The, polit the politicians are a big part of the problem, but I think the public uh, falls for it too. That uh, you know, a lot of times the, the educational issues are more complex sometimes than we realize. So I think, for example, we've had ballot measures uh, in several states on whether or not we should uh, have bilingual education. For example, mm -hmm. well, the average person can't explain what bilingual education is. They don't even realize that bilingual education means kids are supposed to come out speaking two languages right. <laughs> and literate in two languages. Right. Um, and, and so, we, we, you know, we end up asking the public to support things without really explaining what the issues are. The media contributes to this problem. The media doesn't really shed the light on what is a good, high-quality education look like, even though we have so many examples of schools that serve affluent kids in private schools and suburbs that do this very well. So we should know what high quality education looks like. When it comes to educating poor kids, suddenly we become less able to, to, to really focus on the conditions that must be placed that will allow us to meet the needs of children. Say, say more about that, because you've touched on a few of these elements of what we mean by quality or high quality. There's there's a lot of discussion about what this means when it comes to early childhood programs, preschool, childcare, those kinds of things. Say more about what you mean by what, what, it, what a high quality program really is for kids. Yeah, so the way I, I frame it for people to kind of make it real clear is, you know, if I'm a gardener, uh, and I do garden. Uh, that's one of my hobbies. Uh, I know that there are certain really essential conditions that must be placed. I've got to have adequate water and sun and fertilizer and pest control and hopefully good seeds. And if I get all the ingredients right, my vegetables will grow. Well, that's the way it works in education. 
we need to know what are the essential conditions that must be in place in schools for, for children to thrive, for children to learn. Well, safety is right there at the top of the list. And by safety, we not just mean, we don't just mean physical safety, we mean emotional and psychological safety. Kids need to learn in an atmosphere where they're supported, where they're encouraged, where they're not afraid of making mistakes, where the relationships with the teacher is positive and affirming, and where their relationships with their peers are also um, uh, conducive towards supportive uh, learning relationships. We know that that teachers need guidance. And, and, and the reason I, I keep harping on this is because Education is one of the few professions where we will deliberately assign the least experienced teachers to work with the most challenging kids. Mm -hmm. We Mm -hmm. don't do that to pilots. We don't do that to doctors. We don't do that in almost any other field. But in education, we do it over and over again. And then we ask, why are kids failing? Why are teachers quitting? Well, we set them both up to fail. And we don't provide the guidance and support. Um, And so consequently, we see lots of teachers who become frustrated burnt out and lead the profession. So we need to change that. We need to make sure that we really focus on tapping into the natural curiosity of children. Kids come to us curious. The the most common question we ever hear from a three-year-old is why. Why mm-hmm. is why is the sky blue? They want why do know. I have to eat my broccoli? Right? right. Yeah. <laughs> why do I have to take a bath? <laughs> they, these are not factual questions. These are questions kids have, literally have, because they, they're higher order questions. They want to know what's behind it, right? right. And, and when you tap into the natural curiosity of a child, it actually drives learning. It drives the intrinsic desire that all kids have to learn, to grow. And um, when you do that, kids become a willing participant in their education. So many schools I go to, I ask, what's your strategy for getting kids motivated to learn? And they look at me like I'm crazy. They don't have a strategy. They don't even realize that's part of the work right. <laughs> is tapping into motivating kids. And you can do that by tapping into their curiosity. So, you know, there are these conditions that I'm describing, and I could go on with these with, with some with some other important aspects, are, are are too often neglected. All you have to do is go to the schools that you see are struggling, and you can say, well, these schools are not conducive to teaching and learning anyway. They will never work. Mm-hmm. And that's what we need to confront is the way we set some schools up to fail. You, you talked about uh, the role of parents and teachers, and I want, I want to just explore that a little bit more. We know that the, you know, the early childhood workforce is chronically underpaid and in many ways undervalued. What else could we do to be supporting uh, educators in the early childhood space? And then uh, also say more about the role of parents. I think the role of parents and families is particularly crucial when it comes to the education of, of very young children. Uh, so say more about what that would look like and what we could do to support parents and families in terms of uh, having them engaged in, in their child's learning. Well, let me, let me start with the question you asked about uh, teachers and yeah. early childhood education. We know that you know around the country, part of the reason why teachers who work with small children especially are underpaid is because we think it's simply babysitting. Mm-hmm. And what we completely ignore is that the learning that occurs during infancy sets the foundation for learning that will occur throughout a child's life. The brain is developing. And if you have educators who understand child development and are able to support that child um, in learning and uh, through play and through social interaction, which is how we learn during those early years, 
it's going to benefit that child well into their adulthood. Um, well, we, we're not doing that in many places. The best example for how to do it comes from Montessori schools, right? And, and Montessori, I try to remind people, was created by Maria Montessori, a physician in Rome and in the ghettos uh, and serving the poorest kids mm-hmm. uh, because she understood all kids needed this. And this was not, you know, something just for affluent kids. But when it got imported to the United States, it's become almost exclusively available to affluent children. So this is, again, an American problem. But but if we look at models for how to do it well, we'll see that a lot of what we're doing in the name of early childhood education is at odds with what we know about child development. <clears throat> when we think about parents, and I can't say this enough, um, we know that when parents are supporting their kids, kids do better academically. Right. Um, what we know is that you don't have to have a college degree to support your kids. You don't have to do the homework for them, um, which some parents do, especially affluent, well-educated parents. What you need is parents who are uh, getting the kids to bed on time, limiting access to TV and social media, who are reading with their kids and encouraging them uh, to do well. When that's happening and that message is clear at home, kids are going to do better in school. Uh, When there's trust and a supportive relationship between teachers and parents, kids do better in school because then you don't play play each other off against each other. Again, you want parents to reinforce the learning at home. So parents are often an untapped resource. And I often tell people, you know, you can either, uh, parents can either be your biggest asset or your biggest problem. You need to make them an asset. But for that to happen, we need to also recognize that most teachers get no training on how to work with parents, especially if the parents are from a different racial or socioeconomic background. So we need to invest in training teachers on how to work with parents. Uh, so that they can build those kinds of partnerships that we know are vital to learning. I wanted to ask you, uh, just in thinking about early childhood and the way it connects to K-12, and part of this is that we know that achievement and learning gaps start early. A lot of the research shows that those those gaps start well before kindergarten, and then they tend to stay in place. They carry forward into K-12, and and K-12 has has not been particularly effective in being able to close them. So I wanted to get your thoughts on on that, and and I'm I'm just wondering what we could do to potentially make K-12 be a better advocate for more more early childhood investment. Well, you know, again, we've said we want to close the achievement gap, and we keep ignoring the fact that the gap doesn't start at five. It starts before five. It starts because um, when kids don't have access to learning experiences. Some kids have not seen a book till they get to school. And some kids have not, basic things, have not had the chance to play. A lot of kids nowadays are not playing outside, for example, because their parents are afraid uh, that they'll be, um, you know, in danger in some way. Mm-hmm. And so school's got to be a place where we socialize kids, where we prepare them for learning. The earlier we do it, the better it is for the child, the better it is for their outcomes. And so um, what we need to, to, to do is to get K-12 to recognize that if you want to improve outcomes for kids, you've got to start early. And there's got to be reinforcement again between kindergarten and preschool. Now, you, I would say you need the same kind of focus on articulation from elementary to middle school and middle school to high school, mm-hmm. because often we see kids get lost along the way because there isn't good communication. And we're not real clear about what it means to prepare children for each stage at each stage at each grade level for the next what their next challenges will be so there's a lot we could do differently and there are places you know the good news here is there are a lot of places that uh, do this well 
a lot of schools that have do this well. So there's no reason to believe that this is something we can't accomplish as a country. We simply have to look at the places that are already accomplishing it and 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 follow their lead. And are you pointing to to examples of where preschool in particular is better connected to K twelve or or what do you, what do you mean by that? And are, are there some examples well, you could talk about? Yeah, there there are the definitely places that do a great job with preschool and and have great um, articulated programs. But there are also schools of high schools, middle schools, elementary schools that are doing an excellent job. And 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 that includes an excellent job with poor kids, with kids of color. I, I point to these examples. And we wrote a book called Excellence Through Equity, where we documented these places because mm-hmm. they they point they remind us that the problem is not children. The problem is the, our inability to create the conditions that allow children to thrive. That's what we've got to focus upon. So one of one of the questions I had for you was around thinking at the district level or, or of districts that are 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 focused on implementing an equity-focused agenda to, to improve student outcomes. Um, are, are, is that the same thing that you're pointing to now? Are, are, these, are these districts that are whole districts that are structured in a particular way? Are we looking at really maybe just schools that are doing the right thing? Or can we point to whole districts that are really making, making these important changes? Well, we can certainly point to lots of schools. It's harder to find districts, but there are some examples of districts that are do have an equity focus. And an equity focus means they've enacted strategies that allow them to meet the needs of all kids. You know, there are a lot of schools that uh, and districts that claim to be committed to excellence. They're only good at serving kids who don't need much help. That's a huge problem. If you can only serve people that don't need much help, then, well, guess what? There's lots of kids out there who need help. <laughs> right. You know, it's like going to a hospital and they tell you we're only good for healthy people. No, I need a, I need a hospital that's good for people who are sick. <laughs> and, and, um, and, you know, that's a sad thing. We, 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 I can't tell you often I visit districts where even when they have lots of resources, you see these huge gaps in achievement. Mm-hmm. And, it, and a lot of times the gaps are, 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 can at least be attributed to their failure to address the learning opportunities for children. So I, I think we just got to do a better job of learning from the places that do it well. Uh, one of those places I, I point to is Abington, Pennsylvania. Abington is a, a, a district, suburban district right outside of Philadelphia. It's racially and socioeconomically diverse. It's been closing the achievement gap for the last 16, 17 years. Their, their superintendent, Amy Sickle, who's won superintendent of the year several times now for the state of Pennsylvania, just retired. But she's known as a person who develops leaders around her. So I have no doubt that they'll continue to make progress because it's not just about her. It's about the way in which the whole system operates. Part, part of what she's been able to do is, is develop additional leaders to carry on the work. What are what are some of the specific things that she's been able to implement to to help close those achievement gaps? I, sometimes I hear about examples from time to time, but they they tend to be fleeting. So if we're, if if she's actually been successful at the district level to close uh, close achievement cap, gaps for Afri- African American kids, for Native American children, etc., what what does that look like? Is it culturally uh, specific programming? Is it what kinds of strategies are happening at the school level? So it's many different things. Um, you know, one of the things that they've done real well is to ensure that kids have access to, you know, the rigorous courses, that there are not gatekeepers in place trying to keep kids out of honors or advanced placement, uh, and that when they provide the access, they also have teachers who are prepared to teach those kids. 
um, and don't set them up to fail. Uh, that's been a real important part of improving outcomes for kids. But beyond that, they make sure kids, when they enter middle and high school, are involved in clubs and extracurricular activities. We've known for many years that kids are involved in sports, in music, in theater, uh, who write for the newspaper, do better academically than the kids who are not involved. Mm-hmm. And that's both because they establish strong relationships with schools, but also because they're developing things like discipline and teamwork and the kinds of attributes that we know are tied to success. So it's it's a number of different things that they, they do well. Um, it's, it's Again, you can't just say one thing because um, it's not one thing. Right. I wanted to get your your thoughts on some of the things that we're working toward in uh, in the state of Oregon around early childhood and when we you know we're we're advocating for uh, an expansion of preschool uh, improvements to what our child care system improvements in how we deliver early intervention early childhood special education and so it becomes this mixture of programs when we talk about early childhood i mean ideally we could get to a point where these programs feel more like a system and are more connected, but uh, at least for the time being, we're advocating for these expansion of these early childhood programs as as a as a part of the solution that we're trying to drive at the state level. And I, I wanted to get your view on that, just that approach in general. And is there some other strategy to developing solutions that uh, that we should be considering, or that states in general should be considering? So here, here's a rule of thumb. All you have to do is look at what affluent kids are getting and say that's what poor kids need to. So affluent kids are getting good preschool, okay? Right. I know very few parents who just keep their kids at home, Mm -hmm. especially when they have working parents. Mm -hmm. They've got to have preschool, and they make sure they're good, high quality. But that's not all they get. They get rich summer experiences, summer camp. They get after-school support, violin lessons. You know, they get the the works. Well, that's what all kids need. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge is especially in a state like Oregon, which has large rural areas. How do you do that in, in rural communities? And, you know, how do you make that available? And, and you know, so I'm not going to suggest that it's easy or um, because it is, it's costly and it's, and it's tricky to figure out how you plan for it, but it, it can be done. Mm-hmm. And, again, there are the best example of how it can be done is occurring right now in New York City in the Harlem Children's Zone. Harlem Children's Zone is – now probably oh, about 15 years old. It's been nationally recognized as a model for, in child development. It works with kids from birth through college, and it serves very poor kids, over 12,000 of them in central Harlem. And it's been getting excellent outcomes for many years now. So we do know that when we make the right investments, we can influence outcomes for kids. Many people say, well, Harlem Student Zone is so expensive. Well, that, that's maybe the, the Cadillac model. We need a Toyota model for the rest of the country, right? <laughs> and that's where we need public sector working together with the private sector to make investments uh, because most of the money in our country is in the private sector. And we need the business involved in supporting our children, supporting our states. Are there some examples of what uh, of business really getting involved and in, in doing this in the right way? Absolutely. I often point out to people, the state that has the greatest number, the greatest percentage of their children in quality early childhood education is Oklahoma. Now, many people are shocked to hear that because we don't think of Oklahoma as a place that would make an investment in preschool. But they've been doing this now for over 20 years. And a lot of it has been made possible by oil companies, believe it or not, (laughs) because, you know, they have a lot of oil and, and fracking 
in Oklahoma. They also have a lot of earthquakes because of it. But these oil companies have invested in preschool. Uh, and so Oklahoma City, Tulsa, but also in many rural areas, there's a high-quality preschool. Now, I don't want to say Oklahoma is a model by any means because they don't pay their teachers well at all. That's why they had a strike there this mm-hmm. year. But they have shown that you can create high-quality preschool for the vast majority of children through this kind of sustained partnership between the public and private sector. I know that you you are out there and, and you are well-known and you're bringing your ideas to as many people as possible. And, and yet these these complex issues like racism and poverty feel like they are intractable. And I'm just wondering, what kind of messaging do you feel like cuts through? What's what's really working? What, what do we need to do more of? Well, you know, I try to do this in our conversation today is really stay clear about what are the conditions we need to work on. And then what are the, 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 the measures the state must take to support schools and districts? You know, what we've done over the last several years is we focused on accountability. We focus on the use of data to shine the light on, on these gaps in achievement, these disparities on where schools are struggling. Well, just shining the light doesn't tell you what to do. And all we've done is shine the light. We haven't said, okay, what do we do to help those schools that are struggling? What do we do to ensure that schools that are struggling are learning from schools that are making progress? Mm-hmm. Um, we, we don't build capacity in schools. We use pressure and threats and humiliation as a strategy for trying to get schools to improve. Um, and this doesn't work. Um, you, you know, you think about Michelle Ree, the former chancellor of uh, schools in Washington, D.C., who said she wanted to fire all the bad teachers. And she appeared on Newsweek with a broom in her hand. And, and, you know, most people know she couldn't tell who the bad teachers were, right? Um, right. Because many teachers are set up to fail. And you put, you put capable people in dysfunctional schools and they look bad. So this idea that you can fire your way into better schools is another fallacy that's been uh, perpetuated. We need to really focus on building capacity. It doesn't mean that we don't need to also focus on preparing teachers well, but is as important as that is, we need to also focus on supporting them once they're in our schools. Pedro, it's been a pleasure talking with you today. I really appreciate your input, and uh, I hope we can do it again sometime. Well, thanks. And um, it's been a pleasure. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure a strong beginning for Oregon's children. If you have a moment, please subscribe to our podcast. We've just recently been added to Spotify, and you can find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find episodes on our website at childinst.org.